Let's pray once more. Father, I say amen to all that we've said and read from Scripture and sung so far. I'm grateful that you hold all of your own in love until the very end, as we just sang. You are a God of amazing grace. You are a God of righteousness. You are a God of justice. You cannot wink at evil. You deal justly with all evil. And as we read about ourselves in Scripture, no one is righteous, no, not one. And yet, you are a God who's provided a way, and you, as we will see today, are tightly wound, tightly sprung to step forward with blessing to the righteous. Say thank you. I just want to say thank you that you're the God who is there. And I pray that you would be made more clear to us today and that you would fill our hearts with um, more faith, with a more full faith, and a more overflowing joy in you, I pray. So lead us now and make your word clear and make it compelling to our hearts, I pray. And show us Christ. Amen. Well, today we look at Psalm 7, as was just read. And in Psalm 7, David cries out to God because he's been wrongly accused of a sin, a crime. What we'll see today, as we watch and listen to David, we'll see three pillars, three pillars that give David a sober clarity in his response, in his response to this false accusation. So we're going to see three pillars in dealing with false accusations with that particular issue, that particular problem. But there will be a universal application from these pillars because as we all um, experience in life, David has been promoted to a new level of responsibility in his life as king. And in some ways he's done well, but in very dramatic and grievous ways, he failed. He has failed um, in his new level of responsibility in life. And so as David walks on these pillars, he is learning as we all need to learn, as we all need to learn how to faithfully grow into those promotions that God gives all of us in life. Those new and higher levels of responsibility, these pillars are, are pivotal in all of life. Okay, so let's look at the passage together and then we'll consider one theological problem with it and then we'll practically apply it to ourselves. Well, the superscript at the before verse 1 tells us that David prayed and wrote this when a man named Cush from the tribe of Benjamin spoke something to him. <laughs> Very cryptic. Uh, verses 1 and 2, we see that his words, however, had the power to rip David's soul apart, to literally just totally wreck his life. So David cries out for deliverance from whatever Cush said, okay? And the problem, verses 3 through 5, is that these words are not true. The accusation is that David supposedly wrongly repaid a friend with evil and at the same time plundered an enemy without cause, okay? David says, okay, if, if I did that, then I deserve whatever I get, O Lord. But I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And then there's the Selah, signaling for us to stop and ponder this. Okay, so what accusation could, could this person have made? What could someone have said that would add significantly to David's turmoil? 
which by this point is already significant. This, we're, we're reading this at the point after David has sinned with Bathsheba. If you've been keeping score at home, things have just been getting worse and worse. He sinned with Bathsheba, um, had her husband murdered, hid it for a year, totally abused his position as, as king, and totally manipulated everything, and now his kingdom is in disarray, and Absalom, his own son, is now after him to usurp the throne from his own father. A mess. A mess. And now this. Now this. So what, what is this? Well, one hint is in verse 4 that, again, this is a person that David supposedly harmed and was both a friend and an enemy. And the second hint is that Cush, whoever Cush was, um, was from the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe that Saul was from, the previous king who died in battle, but not at the hand of David. Not at the hand of David. So these hints agree with a moment in 2 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 5. David, again there, in that, that situation, is fleeing from his son, from the armies of his son, Absalom. And as he travels, a man named Shimei, from the tribe of Benjamin, the family of Saul, approaches David and starts throwing rocks and dirt on him, on the king. And Shimei says, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. In other words, he's saying, God is punishing you for you stealing the throne from Saul. The way you treated him unfairly, you cheated him, you manipulated him, and now God is punishing you. But the truth, we're reading the rest of Scripture, is that David had many opportunities to kill or harm Saul, even while Saul was threatening, was chasing David around to kill him, but David would not. David would not, for the simple reason that God had commanded that you never lift your hand against God's anointed. You never do that. And so David didn't. Though David had been anointed king while Saul was still king, he would not. David refused to take the fulfillment of that promise for that David would be king. He refused to take the fulfillment of that promise into his own hands, even while Saul, Saul was running around the countryside trying to kill him. So then one of David's soldiers says to David in verse 9, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. <laughs> We were talking about this the other day, the men's Bible study. The, the Bible is rated R <laughs> in many cases. <clears throat> Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go, go over and take off his head. Which, you know, today is still basically what happens. If you try to harm the president, you might end the day in a wooden box. You know, um, that's still what happens. But David says to his soldiers in verses 10 to 12, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? speaking to the soldiers, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? Who, sh who should question it? If God told him to curse me, who's to question it? Behold, David goes on to say in verse 11, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite? In other words, if my own son is seeking to kill me, why would we be surprised that a Benjaminite of the family of Saul, this, this random guy with a grudge, not 
take the opportunity now to do the exact same thing. Why does that surprise any of us? Leave him alone, David says, and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. <laughs> Fascinating. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me or reward me with good for his cursing today. <laughs> Remarkable. Remarkable. Uh, so, so foreign to what we know is the normal human response when a false accusation is made. So foreign. Remarkable. God is sovereign even over false accusations. And perhaps, perhaps he wants to reward me, to bless me through my peaceful enduring of this unjust charge. So David lets him go, and Shimei continues to curse and hurl dust and rocks on David as he travels along on his royal donkey. So what, what grounds David? What, what are the pillars that ground David to respond this way? Well, the, the, the pillar we see, that the first one that we see in 2 Samuel 16, uh, is that David sees the situation with honest humility. Honest humility. And humility, true humility, only comes by seeing ourselves and our situation in light of who God is. You cannot be humble without coming to see yourself in light of God. But when you see yourself and your situation in light of the God who was there, you can't do anything but be humbled by that. So he sees the situation with honest humility. So, so, so what do I mean by this? Well, the first piece of this is that it's only implied, but it's as if David here is saying, yes, I am a man of blood. That's actually true. That's actually true. In fact, Shimei, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't know how many people I've slaughtered, how I've manipulated, how, what I did. I'm not even sure if you know that I murdered Uriah. Do you know that? It's, you don't know the half of it. Yep, I am a man of blood. And yet, before God, this thing that you accuse me of, I did not do. Both are true. Both are true. Honest humility. Yep, you don't know the half of it, yet I did not do this thing. And, and, as I think about the God who is there, I'm drawn to in the inescapable conclusion that even in this, God must be up to something good. Good, which we'll get to that in a second. But this, this accusation that Shimei or his, his friend Cush evidently and other people were perhaps making from the tribe of Benjamin, this, this made for a very complex political situation because the last thing David needed was in all this turmoil for the tribe of Benjamin who were the real warriors of Israel to rebel and just make the whole thing even worse, you know, make a rat's nest within their rat's nest. Um, that's the last thing anyone needed. So David knows that only he, he does not have the ability to see it through. He does not have the ability to untangle the rat's nest. And David knows that only his sovereign God can graciously see through it all and unwind it. And so the second pillar here is that David candidly cries out to God. He candidly cries out to God, and that's Psalm 7. Psalm 7, verses 6 and 7, of Psalm, back to Psalm 7. Oh God, you are the only righteous judge, so judge me. Judge me according to my righteousness and judge others according to their righteousness and integrity, verse 8. And this leads to the third way that David can have such wisdom and restraint here with Shimei 
um, and how the king, the king could turn the other cheek in this situation. That is, David has faith in future favor. Faith in future favor. So let me explain what I mean by this. You, you remember that earlier in 2 Samuel 16, David told his men, it may be that God would look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing today. David reminds his men and himself that the God who is there is a God who judges and he judges in order to righteously repay in the future for whatever he finds. For whatever he finds. Let me say, by the way, uh, if you've never been here before and you're surprised by having children in the service, that's just all right. <laughs> okay? Just, just programming note. Okay? Um, I don't mind that at all. Um, so David, David knows that this is a God who judges justly, who judges justly and repays by whatever he finds, be it evil or good. The God who was there is a rewarding God. This is a rewarding God. As the writer to the Hebrews put it, without faith, this is Hebrews 11 verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must A, believe that he exists, got it, and B, that he rewards those who seek him. This is a rewarding God, and he rewards those who seek him, not those who are perfect, but as we will see, those who seek him and in seeking him repent of their own ways, of their old ways. Psalm 7, verse 12. So this is a God who rewards with blessing, but he also rewards negatively too. As David says in verse 11, this is a God who feels indignation every day. He didn't just feel indignation about the stuff that I did. He feels indignation about the, what Shimei is saying here too. And yet God is so sovereign that God can use the very things that he feels indignation about to bring about a situation where he might reward and bless his people. <laughs> so, he feels indignation every day, but, and if a man does not repent, verse 12, God prepares for him fiery weapons of wrath. So, what are these weapons? And our, the first thought that goes through our head is, oh, okay, so this is a God who like sits over humanity and he's just like right there with it, like, ready to, uh, you know, like, a spear fisherman, you know, like, uh, right? That's what it first sounds like. Verses 14 through 16, the, the evil man conceives evil. So, so what are these weapons? The evil man conceives evil, gets pregnant with a baby called mischief, and gives birth to lies. This causes him, verse 15, to dig a pit, and then he falls into his own pit. He shoots evil flaming arrows into the air, verse 16, and those arrows are the very, is the very violence that falls back on his own head. In other words, God's reward, God's repayment for evil is usually often baked into the very fabric of reality. Sin brings its own reward. God is taught and designed his own universe to recoil from and be repulsed at sin and to reject it. And yet at the same time, as I prayed earlier, God is tightly wound. He's, he's trained his, his reality to, to recoil it and bring his own reward to sin. And yet at the same time, he is tightly wound, tightly sprung to spring forward with, with blessing, with blessing to those who seek him. To those 
who out of that seeking him, out of faith in him, do righteously, who repent and do righteously. David believes God exists, but so do the demons. But he also believes that this God rewards those who seek him even more profoundly and personally than those who rebel against him. So often we have this whole thing upside down. We, we think that, that God's most personal response to us is, that's what, he's, that's, that's what God's really energized by. Is the, totally backwards, totally backwards. God has designed reality itself to bring the, but personally, what really, quote, if I can say this, gets God up in the morning, okay, that's, that's a euphemism, okay, I, I, I don't mean to sound, um, but, but what, what, what God is, he's tightly wound, he has sprung, he has energized, if I can put it that way, about the, the God of the universe to bless, to reward faith, to reward those who seek him. So, this, this honest humility, this, this candid crying out and this faith in future favor that this is a God who will reward me if I endure this, this is what enables David to turn the other cheek and not take vengeance into his own hands, to do this remarkably self-controlled and wise, to make this remarkably self-controlled and wise response to this Shimei guy. And it's why David can end the psalm so confidently in verse 17. The coin is now turned. I will give the Lord thanks due to his righteousness when he rewards me. So confident. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Circumstances have not changed. David's still in a rat's nest of turmoil. But now there's confidence. Okay, well, that's the passage, but there's a, there's a problem here for us Christians because we believe in the doctrine of what some call total depravity. Total depravity. After all, David himself says so, right? Earlier in Psalm 5, and it's repeated in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. Thus, when we hear David say in Psalm 7, verse 8, judge me according to my righteousness, after being lazy and staying back from war and stealing another man's wife and having him murdered and abusing his power to do all this and lying about it for a year, bringing shame and distrust on the whole house and putting his whole country in disarray, we say, judge me according to my righteousness. We hear him say that, and we say to ourselves, somebody needs a lesson in self-awareness, <laughs> right? Where, what right do you have to, like, we, we kind of side with Shimei. We, we kind of say, you know, really? Um... We, we say, you kind of got what you deserved. I mean, what are you complaining about? I mean, after all, David does say later even, if God should count up sins, that no one would stand. Or as one modern rapper puts it, if we cried out for justice, we'd all be in hell tonight. So, so what, is, what is David saying here? Well, all that, that, all that we just said is actually true, except it's not the whole gospel. It's not the whole gospel. The whole gospel leads us to somewhere that I think is delightful in its freedom. So, so here the, the gospel starts with the bad news. David is a wretch. <laughs> David is awful. awful. He's done awful things, but he has also confessed his sin eventually, and he repented of his sin, verse 12, and he returned to God in faith, not in perfection, but in faith. And much later came Jesus, the greater David, and he died for us, and the deadly weapons of God, the deadly weapons of God that, he, that have been baked into reality, they all fell upon him in our place. 
The evil that we conceived, our mischief and our lies fell on him. He fell by his own choice into the pit that we dug by our sin. The mischief that we were pregnant with, the violence that we produced fell upon his head in the form of a crown of thorns. But he was raised from the dead, having endured the scorn. And so, as Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. The justice has been meted out. There is no double jeopardy with God. He does not judge sin twice. Yes, reality still recoils at sin, but it is no longer for judgment. It is only for fatherly discipline. And God is still this God who is tightly wound like the prodigal's father, who when we return back to him to see us from a distance, hike up a skirt and run towards us. David could not yet see the cross, but he knew the Father well enough to know his forgiveness, and that freed him That freed him to entrust himself into the judgment of God, into the judgment of God, which graciously covered all of David's awful sin, and more than that, brought David back under the favor of God, whereby God would bless David, and David could throw himself on that confidence, on that truth, betting his life on the future favor of God to him. The result, the result of all this, Paul pictures in 1 Corinthians 4. Paul says there, speaking of himself and his friends, he says, It is required of stewards that they be found faithful, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Fascinating. Very small thing. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Can you imagine that, a life where you might walk around all day never judging yourself? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Verse 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself, not that David's not a sinner, but that he has repented, um, repented of his known sins, but I am not thereby acquitted either. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. David is free. Paul is free to entrust themselves to God, who is the judge, knowing that all of their sins are covered by the blood of Christ and knowing that this God, in the end, will bring a commendation, will bring blessing, will bring reward for every moment walked in faith. That's freedom in that. Freedom to walk around. I do not judge myself, and it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. That's freedom. It's freedom to be able to walk that way. This is freedom to live this way by faith in God's future favor, his future reward. On that day, our sin will be rewarded. That's true, but so will our faith in so much larger measure. In light of that judgment, who is Shimei, the thrower of rocks? In light of that, of that day when, when all of my sin will be covered and I will be commended, blessed, rewarded. Who is the thrower of rocks today? It's such a small thing that I should be judged by him or by anybody else. Perhaps God sent him to get some of that judgment over with now. <laughs> and perhaps some reward awaits me for enduring that shame on that day when he returns. So I will walk in the joy of that future favor on that day. 
Okay, so it matters very much whether we stand righteous before God by the righteousness of Christ. This is a righteousness which only comes by faith, by faith in him. If you've not become a Christian, you do not have this freedom, but you can if you would trust him. Trust him. Believe. Believe. But then after that, it matters very much whether or not we are righteous whether we are righteous because that, that growth in righteousness that we all seek, it comes by faith. It comes by faith in God's future favor. God's future favor. Okay, so this subject of false accusations and enduring them, it brings up many practical questions. And just a, a note here about applying scripture that if Christ is raised from the dead and if he is king of all, check, check, if, if Psalm 2 is true, that he is the king to which all of the world must answer to, check, yes, then, then he, he is king that there is, as one theologian once said, there is no square inch over all existence, over the, all the universe, over which Jesus does not say, mine. We might expect, when we look at the word of God, to apply the word of God to every inch of our lives, every inch of our lives, everywhere. So I want to look at just a few um, spheres of our life here and, and apply this out in a few different ways. Let's start closest to home and then work our way out. First, the family, the household. Um, if you've been married more than like five minutes, you have experienced a false accusation. <laughs> um, misunderstandings are bound to happen. And we are prone to make judgments about the other in ways that out of those misunderstandings, the wrong points of view, we're prone to make sins out of things that are not sins. And here's the battleground of countless arguments, countless arguments in, in families, um, in households. What, what to do? What, what to do about this? Well, we follow the pillars of David, believing the gospel. When you are accused of sin, when you are accused of sin and it is wrong, our first response must be honest humility. Honest humility first. Oh, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> you don't know the half of it. In general, you, you married a much worse sinner than you think. You know, uh, you have no idea the depravity I'm capable of. I mean, I, I gave you my best self through our dating years. What did you expect? You did the same thing. Yeah. Um, of course. And yet, and yet, check your Bible. Check your Bible. If you have sinned, if your spouse or a family member is right, if you have sinned according to God's royal law, and again, according to God's royal law, if you have sinned, then agree with the accusation and repent yesterday. And if yesterday is not available to you, then do it right now. <laughs> Confession of sin and the seeking of forgiveness is a normal, common act in a Christian household. Did you know that? That is a normal, common act. Um, now, on the other side of this, if you have not sinned, if you have not sinned, do not apologize. Do not apologize. Do not judge yourself. And do not let the wrong judgment of someone else sit on yourself. Do not lie to get by. <laughs> because that's what, that's what that would be, is lying. If you have not sinned, do not lie to get by. You can't build a marriage on lies. But the timeline of the other spouse coming to the same understanding will not be the same as yours. <laughs> uh, 
Your job then is not to return fire for fire. Your job is not to return fire for, but you, that one time, six months ago, um, your job is not to return fire for fire, but to believe the gospel that God alone is your blessed, generous judge. Then you are able to deny the charge, deny the charge honestly, but then not return fire for fire, but endure the scorn. Endure the scorn when your spouse has become Shimei the rock thrower. We do this, how? By faith. By faith in God's future favor that God may have ordained this moment for you for your future reward. For your future reward. And you may find out on the other side of the conflict that God used your rock-throwing spouse to mature you. God actually was using their sin in making a false accusation against you to mature you for your next promotion in life, for the next stage of your life where you will be taking on more responsibility and need to be a more mature Christian. God works in mysterious ways. And oftentimes, he does this maturing process within our households in shocking and surprising ways. He's that sovereign. (laughs) He's that sovereign. Um, this is also, by the way, how we forgive when the, when the accusation is true and the accusation is confessed by the other because forgiveness is a form of suffering. It's, it's very similar to choosing to not lop off Shimei's head. It is a form of suffering for there too. We, we re- relinquish our right to wrath on the offender. The only way we can do this is by honest humility, by candidly crying out to God and entrusting justice to him, having faith in his future reward for enduring the suffering that he sees it all and he will reward it. On that last day when he returns, he will remember. He will remember. That's 1 Peter 1. He will remember and he will reward. Well, so we learn all these things in the household And then we apply them here in the church. We apply them here in the church because we live in a cancel culture, don't we? And yet, the church is designed by God to be salt and light. So we're meant to be an alternate society, an alternate society, a a micro-Christendom, whereby the world looks and sees something completely different and that's expanding like Jesus' mustard seed metaphor, that's expanding and the world becomes what is inside the church rather than what's outside the church. In other words, what's wrong out there must be fixed in here first. Must be fixed in here first. Cancel culture was in here in the church long before it was a thing out there. Long before. I mean, we, we do it nicer in church because we're nice people you know, it just takes the form of like, you know, the subtle accusation against a leader veiled in the form of a prayer request in a Bible study. You know, just looks, just, it's a, it takes on a nicer look, but in principle, that's no different than the common everyday slander you find on social media. It was in here before it was out there. And yet, we only have what we have Think about this. We only have what we have. We only have the blessings of God, the privileged place of being a kingdom of priests, as we sang just a minute ago, because Christ was falsely accused at a rigged trial, like a sheep led to the slaughter, and he made no sound. Yet it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, the joy, the joy that was the future reward of God's promise to Abraham being fulfilled, countless offspring, as many as the stars of the sky being united to him and welcomed into the Father's presence. 
And all of that came about through the most unjust accusations, the the most rigged trial, the most unjust verdict in history. All of our blessings, our eternal life comes from false accusations. This is our story. The Father rewarded him for the wrong done to him with us. Isn't that something? Thus, we are no longer of the darkness, but we are called to walk in the light, in the light in three ways, three practical ways here. First, first, because we are saved through this, that, that ought to make us, that ought to make us recoil then at making false accusations ourselves. And the way we do this is by 1 Corinthians 13, 7, bearing, believing, hoping the best with about, about everybody, about everybody in this church and in your household. That's the first thing. Uh, bearing, believing, and hoping the best, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Secondly, we must follow Scripture when we either must make a bad report or when we hear a bad report. When we need to make a bad report, Matthew 18 clearly states that we are to go to the person involved first alone and give them a chance to repent. But when we hear a bad report, Proverbs 18 says this, and this is crucial. The one who states his case first seems right. You, you know, you, you experience this. Oh, yeah, makes sense. Until the other comes along and examines him. Oh, well, that sounds good, too. You know, that, that's how we operate. And in the same way, Scripture commands us in four different places by three different writers in Deuteronomy and Matthew 18 and 2 Corinthians 13 and in 1 Timothy 5, that among God's people, you never, you never admit a charge against anyone unless there are two or three witnesses. Whether those witnesses are formally before the church or informally in the secrecy of your mind and heart when it's just the veiled prayer request that's a veiled accusation at Bible study. Um, our default as human beings is that, we, you know, we think where there's smoke, oh, there must be fire. You know, that's, that's our default assumption as human beings. That's why in the political sphere, it's so useful. It's so, it's such a good tool, good tool to make false accusations against your opponent because by the time the truth has come out, the lie has gone around the world, you know, 27 times. <laughs> it's served its purpose and it matters not now what the truth was. But not in the church. God does not permit us to do that especially in the church. In the church, smoke does not mean fire unless a few people have seen the flames. <laughs> this also includes when a political figure or a pundit or a journalist makes a sweeping accusation about a large number of your brothers and sisters whom you might disagree with, for instance, on a political subject. Whatever accusations are made, your king does not give you or me permission to admit that charge into our hearts or into our minds unless we are given witnesses to confirm the claim. Christians should have an immunity against any such political machinations. We should not be counted on by, by anyone of any party to go for the bait and, and think wrongly about any such group of people, but especially about other brothers and sisters in the church. We're simply not allowed. Our king does not permit it. So the general principle here, and, and this is the third principle, Paul writes in Romans 12, 
beginning in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the primary picture of, of the good that Paul is talking about here, it's not, it's not some generalized good. It is living out the gospel, having your response shaped by the gospel, looking like Christ as you respond to whatever the accusation is, whatever the problem is. Okay, well, well lastly, there is application for us here in the public sphere. Two, actually, that I, that I was thinking about. One is in the workplace. One is in the workplace. Um, our righteousness, even, even though the world we see in many ways is in great decline, we need to walk in righteousness. It was good that David could say, yeah, you don't know the half of it, but I did not do that. That saved him. I saw this as a, as a young banker in my previous career. I, I was a brand new branch manager, and um, uh, an employee was pulling some shenanigans, which I could have fired her for, but I cho- chose to have mercy and did a disciplinary review instead, to which it was almost as if she would have preferred being fired because she responded by making up all kinds of accusations. And I, I knew she was doing it, but I didn't know exactly what they were. And then I knew that my boss was doing an investigation, which was really awkward. You know, <laughs> when you're, you know your boss is doing an investigation and you know that he can't tell you and he knows that you know, and you know that you can't talk about it, and it's really awkward. And um, I had reason to live this out. I mean, Psalm 7, I was making this psalm as I went through that, waiting, waiting. And he finally came back, and he said, well, you probably knew that I was doing this. And I said, yeah, I did. And, and he said, well, we, we closed it, and she's, she's gone, and, and you're, you're clear. And he said, we knew, we knew we knew that it was all made up when she said that you went on cursing tirades in the branch with the staff. <laughs> and he said, he said, uh, I've never even heard you cuss in social settings. You know, like after a glass of wine, I've never heard you cuss. You know, um, we, we need righteousness. It still matters a great deal whether or not we are righteous wherever we go. It matters a great deal. It saved me. It saved me. And in, in a similar vein, in a similar vein in the larger public sphere, if God gives you or us favor as we walk by faith such that revival begins and, and starts to spread in our church and out of our church and other churches and in this city and, and the city starts to change and the, the county starts to be um, starts to look more and more like Christendom, like like the church, and it, God's grace starts to flow out from here. W- when we quote, make a difference, you can bet the accusations will come. You and me, we will be slandered. That always happens when God's people quote, make a difference. Those guys who lied to get Jesus crucified, they were probably just a year or two from retirement and getting their pension, you know? They, it was easy to twist them. The system will recoil against the light and it's easy for the system to manipulate and resist. 
But when it happens, when it happens, we need to understand the difference between defense and vengeance. David's men wanted vengeance. David's men wanted vengeance. But there is a time we, we are not permitted to take vengeance. We are not permitted to use the devil's tools, even though the devil uses them against us. We are simply not permitted. But what we are permitted to do is make an apology. Make an apology. Not, not to lie to get by, not in that sense, but in the sense of being an apologist to be defenders of the faith, to make reasoned, informed defenses of the church to the larger public. And the time for that is actually now. The time for that is actually yesterday. Um, but yesterday is not available to us. The time is today. Um, because the accusations against Christians are only growing in our culture. What do I mean by this? I mean letters to the editor, posts on next door. I mean, it, it could be anywhere. Conversations with your neighbors everywhere. The time is now to make apologies to defend the people of God from the devil's accusations. Well, in all these things, the only way, the only way that we can see through all of this to its end and to see it clearly is by walking by faith in the reward of God. And the reward of God brought to us through the gospel, given to us in his son, who did not avenge himself, but instead said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We walk in the steps of Stephen, who when he was literally being stoned, said, Father, hold this not against them. They are our forefathers. These are our pioneers. And we walk in their steps. And the way that we walk is by faith and the guarantee of our faith. The proof that God will come through with reward is that there is an empty tomb. That Jesus is risen from the dead. And he has already done the hardest thing. The hardest thing to remove our sins from us, to cover them, and to give us life eternal in his son. As it says in Romans 8, he who has given us his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The proof of our faith is Christ. Let us trust in him. Let us trust in him for future reward, future favor. And may God be glorified by that in surprising in beautiful ways. Well, let me pray for that right now. Father, I, I pray this for myself. I pray this for all of us that you would grant us um, clearer, more vibrant faith. Faith that trusts in you, that believes your promise to us of a future reward. As you say in um, Luke 13, fear not, little flock, for it is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You are a rewarding God who rewards those who seek you, and I say thank you. So give us the confidence of David. Give us the confidence to obey you, to obey you in suffering, to obey you in false accusations, to obey you in every sphere of life, that you may get much glory from our lives, we ask. I pray this in your name, by faith in your future reward. Amen. 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 The song, the song ends on kind of a minor key note, but that is worth celebrating. That is truth, betting your life on. He is the Lord of all, of every square inch of your life. So rest in that, rest in that, and go betting your life on the promise that he is a rewarding God. He is a rewarding God who rewards all those who seek him. So, Go betting your life on that and seeing God glorify himself through you in the process. Amen.